Hello folks, welcome to Wargaming Month here on The Napoleon Assist. A very quick reminder, smack the like button, remember to subscribe so you can find your way back, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll take you a few seconds of your time, it'll make a massive difference to me and my ability to reach a wider audience with the, the details of the work of my fantastic guests. If you are willing to go just a tiny bit further and dig into your own pocket, and believe me, I completely understand if you're not up for that, you can do so in two ways. You can become a regular supporter via Patreon, different perks in each tier. Check the link in the description for more details on that. Or if a regular subscription isn't your thing, you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi. Again, the link is in the episode description. Whatever support you're able to offer, as you know, I am massively grateful and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist and the first instalment of Wargaming Month, as chosen by my Patreon supporters. We've got a heck of a lot of content coming your way over the coming weeks, some of it exclusively going out on YouTube because it's video related content. Uh, more on that at the end of this episode. I'm going to be talking to people from across the wargaming spectrum, looking at people who've done deep dives, specific uh, battles through to different genres, the ways in which you can get people to engage with history through wargaming, and much more besides. Joining me to kick off this extravaganza is Professor Charles Esdell. Charles is a man who, if you've ever moved in Napoleonic circles, you will know barely needs an introduction. He is the man who famously described Napoleon Bonaparte as being like a squirrel. That is to say, he is a rat with great PR. When he's not coming up with great quibs and, and one-liners like that, he is Emeritus Professor of Modern History at the University of Liverpool and has a preeminent reputation as a leading scholar on the Napoleonic era and crucially as a Hispanist. Uh, he also works in the fields of the English Civil War, has written on the Spanish Civil War as well, um, is, I believe, currently writing about ghost stories during the English Civil War. Um, how he manages to cram it all in, I have no idea. Charles, great to have you back again. You were on a little while back talking about the politics of war. How have you been doing? Um, basically, very, very well indeed. Um, I, can, I can thoroughly recommend retirement. Um, as, as I was saying to you as we were chatting earlier, um, I've actually been able to catch up with a huge amount of reading that I, that I was never able to do as an academic. I mean, you know the old joke about academics. I'm an academic. I don't get time to read books. And, and you know, we'd, 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 we'd joke if we, you know, if you weren't were going across to the, to the library to pick up some books and you, you bumped into a colleague, you know, you'd, you'd have a joke about, oh, I'm going to the library. Don't tell the vice, vice chancellor. It's probably going to rules now. You know, um, so I've, I've actually been able to do a lot of reading. Um, I've also been able to, um, yes, you know, further my, my, my lesser interest in wargaming. Um, I, 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 I fear to say it, I have painted up a great many wargames figures. Um, I've, I've most recently, I've been adding to my, um, uh, my, my army of paper figures to the English Civil War. Um, am I allowed to, to mention certain products on your podcast? Oh, go for it. Oh, I mean, um, there, there's a chap called Peter Dennis, who's a really good military illustrator. And he's produced a range of paper figures 
um, uh, they're, they're called Peter's Paper Boys. Um, Helium Books actually produce a, a whole range of, of books of complete armies. Um, and, and you simply cut out the figures. And now, I mean, you might think that the idea of cut out paper figures, how on earth does that work? Um, I won't go into the boring technical details now, but actually, um, I mean, people might, might have seen some of my photographs on Twitter. I do occasionally put them up. But, but they, they, they are remarkably durable and they look extremely good. And um, you can build up enormous armies far more easily than, and far more cheaply than, than you could by, by painting them. So, so yes, I, I mean, I've also been able to, to get on with wargaming, um, which is something I've been doing since the late 1960s. I, I, I would say. Oh, come, Charles. Surely you're not old enough for all of that. Um, uh, I, 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 I fear to say, my dear fellow, I am more than old enough for all of that. Um, I, you know, it, it, I think it was all my big brother Tony's fault. I mean, for, for, my, for my fifth birthday um, in 1964 or thereabout, he, he bought me a, bo a box of Airfix soldiers. Um, the, 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 the guards colour party and um, that was my introduction to plastic soldiers um, or as my mother used to call them my little men and, and um, I spent all my waking hours playing with boxes of airfix soldiers and, and also bigger figures um, figures by Britons and Timpo and things like that and in fairness I never used to do what many small boys do. I never used to just to sort of stand them up and then and then roll marbles at them or something like that. I always acted out stories um, and acted out battle scenes. And, um, and I was always fascinated by the real battles uh, that the soldiers had fought in and, and um, constantly wanted to find out more and so forth. Um, and then um, my parents started buying me Airfix magazine. Um, I, I, the, the very first one I have, I can tell you, is August 1969. Probably something to do with my birthday, because my birthday's in August. And, and I discovered that there was something called wargaming. And, and I, I remember with my, my Christmas money, uh, that that year, I, I sent off for a book which cost all of ten shillings or something uh, by a chap called John Tunstall called Discovering Wargaming, and I suddenly discovered that you could actually do things with figures. You know, there there, there were there were you know, it wasn't just a matter of imagination and and so forth. You could actually make things happen, and so I mean I. As as the years went went on, I got more and more airfix figures, and and um, airfix brought out its Battle of Waterloo range. I was about uh, to say, did you have the Waterloo range? I did, I, I did indeed, and for for a long time, um, my 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 regiments of French cuirassiers charged my heroic squares of Highland infantry because you could only get French cuirassiers and Highland infantry, and of course the joke is, oh. Sorry, this might be, be obvious to people who know about Waterloo, but many people isn't. No Highland Square was ever charged by French cavalry at Waterloo. They were in the wrong part of the battlefield, the, the three Highland units. 
now now Charles don't come in with your facts and your well-informed you know historical knowledge into all of this this is just about you know throwing throwing things at things and like you say you said earlier you know rolling marbles at, at lines of soldiers and stuff um Yes, I, I, I know, Zach. I'm a very boring person, aren't I? Um, a pedant, even. A pedant. Um, but it, the honest truth is, is, is it to me, whilst it was an engaging intellectual activity, an engaging leisure activity, um, it was also a way of learning. And um, one person who, to whom I owe an enormous debt, and I'm really very proud to have the opportunity to talk about him, um, is, is really the, the father of modern wargaming, Don Featherstone. Um, I mean, I, I very quickly after I discovered discovering wargaming, I came across Don Featherstone. Um, I think I found one of his books in the library. And, and he, he became my childhood hero. You know, I've still got all of his books. Um, I acquired one that I, that I hadn't seen in a, in a second-hand bookshop uh, over on the Isle of Man a little, a little while ago. I was absolutely delighted. Um, and, and that man did so much, so much to, to get me where I am today. He was the nicest of nice men. What I'm trying to say is that actually wargaming is not just... A hobby it's not just my hobby it, it has actually been very much a part of my learning process and it, it's been a way of of testing out theories um exploring particular military options it, you know it is actually you know built into my thinking. Now, I mean, one thing that Don Featherstone said over and over again in his books was that you cannot possibly recreate real war on the tabletop. And, you know, you, you wouldn't want to. But, you know, he was a veteran of the Second World War, you know, a veteran of the Western Desert. Um, but what he said was that you can use it get an inkling of, of the problems involved. And, and yes, I mean, that's, that's very much how I feel. It's, 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 if you want um, uh, a source of stimulation on the one hand, and it stimulates your imagination and so forth. But yes, it's, it's a, uh, a research tool on the other. What I firstly like about that is that you preempted question one of this interview. So Charles, unusually, Charles hasn't had advanced sight of the questions, which is how I normally operate on this podcast. Um, so he's got no idea what I'm about to fire at him over the course of, of this one. Um, but you tap into this personal element, which is where I want to start with each of my interviewees over the course of this series, because there is that personal element. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear how for some, this will be a, a case of, of a hobby, you know, something that they've just indulge in their spare time or they've come to just through a love of history and they've wanted to just have a play around for others like yourself it very much sounds as though wargaming was your route into military history and by extension the napoleonic era yeah um i would say that that is 
80% true. Um, there were other things as well. I mean, you know, my, my parents were wonderfully supportive people who, um, you know, who encouraged my interests. So yeah, it's not just model soldiers. It's, it's, it's the product of something else. And also my parents um, believed that travel was a part of education. And, you know, when I was 11 years old, I was packed off to France to go and learn French, um, you know, with a French family. And it, it was just what you did. Let's start digging into your most recent piece of research, which has come out in the Journal of Advanced Military Studies, because you've looked at wargaming very specifically, Waterloo as a battle, and you've used a particular case study, a particular uh, example, which we'll kind of tap into it in a moment. But I'm curious about the process and the thinking behind this. When it comes to the production of war games, is there that willingness to just focus on Waterloo as opposed to some arguably more interesting battles that are out there. We could have a debate about what those might be. That's a discussion for another day. Um, do you see that inclination to just focus on Waterloo? And if so, why is there that, that inclination to focus on wargaming Waterloo? For a long time, um, the only plastic figures you could get for the Napoleonic period were, were, were the Airfix series. I mean, Airfix eventually brought out about nine sets of, 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 of figures for Waterloo. Um, uh, they brought, brought out for the Laysant farmhouse. Um, but for a long time, they were the only ones you could get. But, but eventually other companies, um, Revel, for example, Italeri, um, eventually had, but much later, started, and, and you, know, you can now get virtually every type of Napoleonic figure you can possibly want, whether it's for Waterloo or wherever. But I remember one, one of the, the, the early, earliest boxes to come out was a box of Austrians. Um, it wearing their 1809 uniform with, with the 1805-1809 uniform with, the, with the, um, the, the crested helmet rather than the shackles that they wore later. Add on the box, it said, Battle of Waterloo, Austrians. Uh, somebody didn't do their research behind that one, did they? Well, they, they, they probably did, but they realised if they're going to market Austrians, that the Austrians had better have fought at Waterloo. And um, so, so, yes, in, in a sense, you do see this. Um, there is a... Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, I mean, I'm, I move very much into the into the, the area of board war games. Um, I, I still use figures, actually, but but a lot of the time my use of figures um, is in the context of things like the Richard Borg series of, of, of games like Memoir 44 and um, Battle Cry and, and um, The Great War. That's a, that's a really good First World War one. And I've customised them by, by replacing the plastic figures with, with painted miniatures. Um, but if you look at board games, um, Waterloo is, is, is fought more than virtually any other battle, and apart from perhaps Stalingrad and the Battle of the Bulge. Certainly in terms of, of you know, pre-20th century warfare, you know, Waterloo is just up there in lights. I mean, it, it certainly beats Gettysburg. 
uh, which is which is the, the other obvious big one. Um, so yeah, um, there is this, this concentration on Waterloo, and indeed, you know, was it a coincidence that when, that when Airfix brought out their Napoleonic soldiers, they were Battle of Waterloo ones? And was it any coincidence that their appearance coincided with the release of the 1970 film Waterloo? Of course it wasn't. Yeah, that was exactly where I was going to go with it. To what extent was that fed by, you know, the the whole thing with the film coming out and so on and so forth? Um, but there's, there's a problem with this from a marketing perspective, isn't there? Which is that if you want to market this outside of the UK, Waterloo perhaps isn't your best choice because Napoleon loses at Waterloo. I mean, in my opinion, he's lost well before Waterloo, but that, that, that's an argument for another day. Um, so if you're trying to uh, market this to an audience that is more pro-Napoleon, um, and quite often I find that uh, there are individuals out in the US, for example, who tend to have more of a uh, pro-Napoleonic stance, Oh, you've, you've meriting this in, in in marketing this in France, then same kinds of stories. You know, to to do Waterloo is perhaps not the best choice, or is it the case that actually the fixation is let's change history and get it right this time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Waterloo can be turned in, into you know the the epitome of heroic failure. I mean, you know, the heroism of the cuirassier thundering up the ridge to throw themselves on, on Highland Square, supposedly. Um, the, 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 the last stand of the old guard, I mean, the, 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 the most in, in military history that never happened. Um, and yes, I did say that. Um, and, and so on and so forth. Um, it, 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 it's wonderfully romantic if you're an admirer of Napoleon. And it's, it's got the same sort of myth of the lost cause as Pickett's charge has, um, you know, for the Battle of, the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, 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 think, I think that the fascination is entirely understandable. And, of course, there is this desire to change history. But, but we, we run into um, another problem there. Um, Quite simply, if you're if you're marketing figures, um, you know you can you can you can market lots of boxes of, of of old guard or Highland infantry or cuirassier or whatever. And with wargaming with figures, the, the wargamer himself um, decides the parameters. You know he buys he buys this set of rules or that set of rules. He, he, or he writes his own rules. She writes her own rules. It's not just men, um, and they and they develop a Waterloo or uh, an aspect of Waterloo which they're happy with. A board game, whether it's um, you know, a, ch a child's board game. I mean, I, in my collection, I've got I've got the Palatoy game Waterloo. Which came out in 1975, and the Airfix Battle of Waterloo War Game. Um, you know, these were things which were marketed on the back of the film Waterloo. Um, in fact, I I I, I thrashed Sinead at, at the Palatoy version last night, and I was rather, rather pleased at that. 
But, but anyway, um, you've got a problem. You're, you're, you're manufacturing a package, yeah, which is which is which is all complete. You know, you've you've got you've got a board, you've got a map, you've got the counters. You know, you 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 you, you produce the rules, showing you how the game works. Now, in any board game, you know, one of the points of playing is that anybody can win. With Waterloo, you've got a different problem. Because you're not just marketing a game, which theoretically anybody can win. You're marketing a situation, a particular historical situation. Now, uh, I'm sure you and I would agree on this. Um, it's a situation you when know, once you once you arrive at Waterloo, or rather not at Waterloo, at, at Mont Saint Jean or La Belle Alliance, um, on the morning of the 18th of June, 1815, Napoleon's chances of winning are pretty restricted. If you roll things back and start the campaign in 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 on June the 15th. There's all sorts of things you can do differently, will do differently, and you can end up with a with a very, which possibly a very different final battle. But if you actually set off, start off with you know historical dis dispositions at Waterloo on 18th of June 1815, something which nobody ever does because invariably the French forces are laid out according to the traditional version with the, with the sixth corps already on the field and. You know, when they were miles away and all the rest of it. It really is hard for the French to win. Um, it, it, it is... Napoleon was in an extremely difficult situation. Um, and if, you, if people have read my Napoleon, France and Waterloo, I mean, I, I of course begin the book with a version of the Battle of Waterloo in which the French win. You know, there were certain things, certain decisions that could have been taken that, that might have changed the day. But even if the French had won, it would have been a very narrow victory, I think, and, and you could certainly see them being swept away by the Prussians the next day and, and so forth. But, so anyway, you've got, you've got a, a situation which is not equal. But then what battle ever is equal? That's that's one of the problems that you have when you're when you're marketing board war games. And also you're trying to market it to as you say a public which for some reason thinks that Napoleon Bonaparte was actually rather a good guy. Yeah. And you know, a a public that, that wants to identify with Napoleon, that wants Napoleon to win, that wants to change history. And that in turn can produce some very, very odd decisions. And one of the things that got me into this book, Wargaming Waterloo, because uh, it, 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 the article you've seen is, is you know, it's like a snapshot of the sort of stuff I'm working on. Uh, what, what got me into it was really the, the, the issue of the presentation of history the the um we towards the end of my time at, at the university of liverpool we had a course in the department on, on public history 
and the way in which history rep is represented and so forth. And um, needless to say, one of the things that interested me was the way in which wargaming was used to illustrate history. Um, wargaming was a way of communicating history. And there's some, there's all sorts of different ways um, it's operated like that. But, you know, the wargaming world has to own up to having projected some very, very nefarious stuff. And I would say that that is obviously that the, the army of Napoleon was not the army of Hitler. I would never, ever compose, compare Hitler and Napoleon. I've never put them in the same basket. Agreed. But, but, you know, we're talking about a force which was used for naked aggression. We're talking about a force um, which, which pillaged and raped its way across Europe. You know, we're talking about some pretty nasty stuff. And the war games world, I think, has to you know, say, well, well, actually, you know, if, if people think that Napoleonic age is glamorous, think of how most war games figures are marketed. If you buy a box of plastic soldiers, for that matter, if you get onto minifigs or whoever and, and order lead soldiers, you get soldiers wearing parade uniforms. You know, and people will, 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 will paint them up in, you know, they're, they're the most colourful best. Did Napoleonic armies look like that? No, of course not. You know, most most soldiers, well, a lot of soldiers, a lot of the time, fought in greatcoats. So, so they were, you know, they would have been sort of drab brown, drab grey. Um, they didn't wear their plumes in battle, and and so on and so forth. But the figures that you buy could be seen as as glorifying war. But all of that is is a is a very long and rambling answer. Um, to, to how I how I got sucked into this because I was genuinely interested in how war games represented history and then within that how Waterloo had been represented and the problems that that causes game designers. Let's talk about the the game at the heart of the simulation that you've done for this article uh, which is Napoleon at Waterloo. Talk us through how this one works, its system. It's a hex-based game, I believe. Um, and why did you pick this one particularly as the focus for your assessment? Right, okay. Um, in a sense, I, I picked it because it was the starting point for many, many board war gamers. Um, it was first produced in 1970 by one of the big um, board uh, simulation games um, companies. One can argue exactly what a board war game is and what a historical si simulation is, but shall we say historical simulations tend to be at the more academic end of the market. They tend to have more pretension and so forth. And SPI was a company, it was called um, Simulation Publications Incorporated, which, which produced a magazine and which came out every quarter. And in every magazine, you got a board war game. 
Um, and as a means of encouraging subscriptions, they produced a free game. If you took a subscription, you would get Napoleon at Waterloo. And um, as you can imagine, it's, it, it, it's a, designed to be a very simple game that will introduce people to the basic mechanisms of board war games as they were played then. And indeed, in many ways, continue to be played. Um, the, the, the board is, um, well, the map, if you like, has a hex grid superimposed on it, um, which governs movement. It shows exactly where your units are, shows exactly where enemy units are. Um, units fight by uh, comparing a, an, an attack strength against the defense strength, and you end up with a ratio of two to one or three to one or four to one. And um, you throw a dice and, and you, you get the results on a, on a table and that will tell you whether the enemy's destroyed or their retreat and so forth. Um, essentially, you have a chronology. Um, the battle starts in, uh, if I remember right, the, actually, the first move, which they, actually begins at one o'clock in the, in the sort of the, the, um, the version that you buy. Um, and, and then the Prussians turn up about, about five o'clock and, and then the battle, the battle has got to end by, by nightfall, nine o'clock or whatever. And you play for a succession of moves in which first one side moves and attacks and the other side moves and attacks and so forth. Um, obvious place to start and a very obvious place to start with regard to inquiring into the way in which war has been wargamed. Um, particularly attractive in, the terms of, in terms of the article which you read because the Journal of Advanced Military Studies you know, goes out to the United States Army basically and, and you can still get Napoleon at Waterloo um, on the internet. You know, just, just, just Google Napoleon at Waterloo, oh, Napoleon at Waterloo game will probably help, and, and you will get all the components. You, know, you can print out the map, you can print out the pieces, you, you can try it out for yourself. Um, now, as I say, gamers, want to play a game in which both sides can win, at least have the possibility of winning, and many gamers want Napoleon to win. When I first acquired the game, many years ago, long before I, I embarked on this, I, I thought that it was hopelessly balanced in favour of the French. Um, I I, I, I to a certain extent, I was wrong. It, it's not as heavily biased in favour of the French as I thought it was. But can you imagine uh, a Battle of Waterloo in which Wellington forgets to put a garrison in Les Saintes? Or in, in, in which Hougoumont uh, has a garrison so tiny that it gets wiped out invariably in the first move? Um... That is what that is the sort of thing that many game designers who want the French to win have to resort to. They 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 will tweak things um, in all sorts of ways which are ahistorical. I mean, and the, 
something else I mentioned earlier. I mean, Napoleon had three corps at Waterloo, plus I suppose the, the Imperial Guard, if you want to call that a fourth corps. Um, but of the three line corps, one of them wasn't on the field at all at the start of the battle, the sixth corps, um, Mouton's corps. Um, it was still marching to the battlefield and it doesn't turn up, in fact, till mid-afternoon. And when it does turn up, it's nowhere near all the maps have it, which is neatly grouped in, this, in, in Napoleon's rear centre, centre rear, rather. Um, so, you know, you, 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 you have a, a particular package which has clearly been set up in such a way as to give Napoleon a, a greater chance of winning. So there. So here's an interesting tester of that realism element. If you doctor the rules to remove that kind of potential, that, that, in, that historical inaccuracy that has been brought in to generate balance between the forces, what happens? What happens when you actually play out the history precisely? Does Waterloo just play out pretty much as it did in front of your eyes, or do you get different kinds of outcomes because you're reliant on, on luck? And that, that's a, a sub-question sub that perhaps we'll come on, on to about role of luck within all of this. But in terms of if, if you play Waterloo as it actually happened, what's the result? Um, what, I, what I've done in particular with Napoleon at War, uh, sorry, Napoleon at Waterloo, um, is that I have, um, created extra pieces, um, pieces for detachments. You actually get one detachment, which is stuck in Ugamont. I've created um, three extra detachments, one of which um, is attached to the, the to Ugamont, um, one you put in Le Sand, and one is put in Papalot, which is also left ungarrisoned. Um, units which are very small in terms of their, their point value. I mean, they've only got a, an attack strength of one and so forth. I mean, they are as small as you can get. Um, I also keep the sixth core off the field. Um, and it, it's only allowed onto the battlefield, or only comes onto the battlefield at, well, the very edge of the battlefield at two o'clock. It, it, can't, it can't actually get anywhere to do anything until three o'clock or even four o'clock. Um, I also say that the, the Imperial Guard can't be used before X o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I, you know, as I impose certain rules, if you like, which, or certain parameters, which, which force reality. Now, um, in terms of, of how you fight the battle, um, I mean, I, I, I listened to um, Gareth Glover and um, who else did you have on? Marcus Cribb talking about Waterloo on your, on your excellent podcast. Um, and they were talking about the, the myths of Waterloo, wasn't it? It was Andrew, I think. Well, in fact, we've had a few Andrew Mythbusters, Fields. actually. So we've had Andrew Field on um, and, and he'll be coming back, actually, for another one on Grusia at Waterloo because the whole myth I want to bash on the head there um discussion for another day um 
But yeah, we've had well, Gareth on, we've had Andrew on. You, you've got to have Field of Waterloo on your, on your podcast. I mean, I mean, one thing that they, they that certainly Gareth, I, uh, I'm, I think they were both hung up on this. I think this is one thing I agreed on. They, they both agreed that, that, that the defence of Google more matters. Um, it doesn't, it, you know, it, it, uh, I, I, as you know, I have spent a great deal of time investigating the battlefield of Waterloo, thinking about how the battle was fought, walking over every inch of it. And the one thing that becomes absolutely clear is, is that Ugamont simply didn't matter. It, you know, it... it I find it well. I, I find it entirely credible. In fact, entirely understandable why you know its role was was, was magnified so much because that's where the guards fought. Um, I I have always suggested that the because uh, you could make a less of a point, but a, a similar kind of point, perhaps about La Haye Sun. Um, these these places matter because they're there, do they not? And so you've got to deny them to the French. But the, the flip side to that is that what happened at Hougoumont shouldn't have happened and a masking force could have been used and, and then more could have happened besides. No, actually, you don't have to deny either to the French because um, neither um, are remotely useful as jumping off points for attacks. Hougoumont, as you know, is, is a pretty... I mean, it's, it's, it, the complex is much bigger than what you see today. Yeah. Um, because all you see today is, is what remains of the actual chateau and farm and the wall garden. You also had the orchards. Um, you also had the, um, the, the, the pastures surrounded by high hedges. And you also had the, you know, the great big wood, which completely screened it from the French. Um, it was a, a massive obstacle to get through. Um, you could send, send troops through it. It would take an awful long time. Um, but once you got them through, you would then have to draw them up in attack order in the very narrow space between the northern edge of Ugamont and, and the British line, or I should say the Anglo-Dutch line. Really? Was that going to work? No, of course it wasn't going to work because Wellington wasn't an idiot. And, and if the French had tried anything so stupid, you know, he would have had his cavalry down on them like a shot. You know, they would have burst over the crest and come crashing down, and that would have been that. So Ugamont is, is useless as a jumping off point. It's, it's too big, it's in the way, it's the, 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 the ground it covers is too broken, you can't use it as a jumping off point. But it's also useless as, as, as a firebase because for it to use it as a, as a firebase, you have to line the outside of the perimeter. You have to hold the orchard, you have to hold the pastures, and you have to hold the wood. If you don't hold those things, if you're drawn, driven back to, to, the, to the, the chateau itself, you haven't got anything to shoot at. Completely totally blind. Ugamoy is, is just a distraction. As for Le Sant, um, positioned as it is, it's, it's, it's well below 
the skyline. It's not up on the top of the ridge. It's 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 halfway down the slope. If you're there, if you if you're in the back garden, um, a lay scientist private property, and and you know I'm saying this very seriously. If you go to Waterloo, do not do not think you can just walk in. It's, it's somebody's own, and and you should respect it. But you can sort of stand close to it, and you know you can you can stand against what would have been the the the, the back the back edge of the back garden. And you can look up and you can see nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, nor can you can you actually form troops up inside it. And, it, and what they're going to do is sort of file through the, through the kitchen corridor to, to get at the, the British. And as a fire base, it, it's marginally better than Ugamont. You can actually see out of the sides. And you have got a field of fire. But there are very few windows, and we know that they didn't have time or equipment to make loopholes. You know, how many riflemen can fire out of the sides at any given time? 20? 30? I mean, all right, they can do it in relays. But it's, 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 it's nowhere near as effective as you might think. Um, so anyway, um, to go back to... Uh, the, the real battle of Waterloo, um, the French could have attacked on Wellington's right, and that's what Wellington expected. But actually, doing that was not going to be particularly effective. You know, the, 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 the ground is, 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 is genuinely very strong, and Wellington had, had put a large number of troops there. What Napoleon did, in fact, was to go the other way. You know, he sent troops to, to, to actually mask Ugamont, and, and also stuck in the troops from the Allied centre and right, which, which they do very effectively. The main attack goes in on Wellington's left. Now, um, what invariably happens if you follow that through is that the first corps um, it will go forward, um, supported by you know some artillery. Um, it, it attacks the ridge, and invariably it gets beaten off, having done some damage, and it falls back. Um, there's an important query to that beaten off by the infantry or beaten off by the as we know it the the, the charge of the union and heavy cavalry brigades it's actually beaten off by 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 the infantry um because now this may be a a, a problem with the game package um the, the the impact of the heavy cavalry you know, actually, in terms of how it gains on the, on the, it's not particularly great. Um, they all, they're all, they can usually drive back anything by which they're faced, but they, they, they can't really annihilate it. Um, you actually annihilate troops by, by surrounding them, by, by making certain that they can't retreat anywhere. Um, so they can be driven back, but not smashed. Um, and maybe a, a, a flaw in the game mechanism. But, but anyway, so what happens is that the, the French be driven back, then you get six corps, six corps coming up, and they, they, they start going forward again. And it is at that point 
that the Sixth Corps gets hit in the flank by the Prussians. Um, and once that happens, um, it's very, very hard for the French to have any chance of success. Um, here again is somewhere where I fear I, I differ from said field of Waterloo, but I, uh, for whom I have a great respect. I, 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 am, I am being facetious, so I, I do hope Andrew will forgive me. <laughs> but, but he, in his, in his book, he, um, Waterloo, the French perspective, he, he talks about um, the Sixth Corps, uh, you know, getting sent to, to fight off the Prussians and, and, and they're there waiting for, you know, when the Prussians arrive. That simply is not true. Um, there is no way whatsoever that Napoleon could have known about the Prussians coming. He just didn't. You, you know, he, he certainly couldn't see them. Um, if you stand at La Belle Alliance or you stand at Rassomme and you look out to the, uh, to the east, um, you really can't see very far. This is something that you talk about, isn't it, in uh, Walking Waterloo, a guide, which folks is published by pen and sword um there you go nice little plug for you uh there if you fight through waterloo or you know napoleon at waterloo in the manner in which i've suggested making the adjustments i suggest you will generally get the historical result in other words if you act as napoleon did with what napoleon had in accordance with the knowledge that napoleon had you will get beaten. Which um, just goes to reinforce the point that we both made, that it's not the 18th that's the be-all and end-all. He's lost the campaign before he even gets there, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's, let's keep going then, um, because this raises an important question about the value of board games as a genre, as an educational tool. So kind of talk us through your thoughts on that, because there, there's two ways to look at this and I feel this with every um, piece of popular entertainment that you know you have to acknowledge as a researcher that these things are there to entertain they're not there to be exact replications of what happened in reality that's the job of folks like yourself and and me to do but at the same time there's always this danger isn't there that people play a game or they go and read a Sharps book or they watch Waterloo 1970 film and they take it as gospel and that's where the educational process stops so what are your thoughts on this is this uh, as a genre a good way of drawing people into the period and we just have to be grateful for that fact or do you think there are things that can be done inverted commas better um well if if, if, if you start with the film waterloo i mean of course there are ways it can be done better you know you could have it worse <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is an appalling film. And, and in all honesty, and I, and, I, and I don't say this, you know, in any sort of boastful sense, I went to see it as a very excited 10-year-old in, in, I suppose, July 1970 when it came out. Um, and I'd only ever read one book on the Battle of Waterloo. My, my parents had, had given me David Howarth's um, near on thing um, for, for Christmas 1969 and I adored it and I've still got the self-same copy 
sitting on my bookshelf and very battered it is too. I loved it. And it was, I, you know, I really do recommend it. It's it's not a very good book on the battle, in a sense. It's, you know, the, the, the Prussians hardly ever get a look in. and um, But it, 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 it looks at uh, the experiences of a number of individuals on the French side and British side. And it really awoke in me very dimly the, the notion that that history is composed of the experience of individuals and you can and you can use the experience of individuals to build up a bigger picture. I mean I could never have vocalized that as a, as a 10 year old but that is where a lot of the work I've, I've done on the human experience of war comes from. And but having read that book I remember sitting there and thinking well the Battle of Waterloo wasn't like that. You know, the, the, the last stand of the old guard wasn't like that. Are you in, telling me, Charles, that, you know, that charge of the Scots Greys that goes on for about half an hour isn't an accurate... I mean, I'm not being funny, but they didn't just charge all the way to La Belle Alliance. They charged all the way to Charleroi and maybe even on to Paris by the time they were done. And, and apparently without seeing a single Frenchman. Seemingly so, yes. Um and, 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 and one could continue, I mean, somewhere or other on, on the internet, I mean, you, you can, you can, there is a, a review I wrote of, 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 of the film Waterloo, in which I was extremely rude about it, and, 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 and rightly so. Um, now, okay, could, could a better film have been made than Waterloo? Yes. Forgive me, Mr. Cornwall, if you're listening, but could could a better series of novels been written than the flash than, than the Flashman novels? No, that's impossible. Uh, could a, could a better series of, of novels been been written than the Sharp novels? Please forgive me, Mr. Cornwall, but yes, I fear so. Um, in terms of the number of people, oh yes, and 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 Mr. Airfix, could you have made better soldiers? To represent the Battle of Waterloo, because some of the boxes really are pretty awful. <laughs> yes, you could. Does that matter? In one sense, no, because it was through that through the media of such things. In my case, Waterloo figures and the film Waterloo that an interest in 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 the history has sparked off. Um, Indeed. And in my case, as I've said before, the Sharp novels, were it not for that and were it not for the historical notes at the back, I wouldn't have embarked on my journey. So this is a tension, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so equally um, with Wargaming, Donald Featherstone is quite right. You know, if you Wargame with figures, you're not going to get the reality of war on the, on, on the tabletop. Incidentally, one thing I talk about at considerable length in, in the book, which is I hope will be coming out, are the problems involved in using figures. Um, that without going into the, into the techniques, you, you've got a, a massive mismatch between figure scale and ground scale. If you, if, if you take um, a figure who is for the sake of argument, 30, 30 millimetres high. And as you know, many so-called 25 millimetre figures are in fact 30 millimetres high. Um, that means that if you translate that to the ground, to the, to the, to the ground five millimetres 
is one foot or thereabout, which means one yard is 15 millimeters. And you get into realms which, you know, no, no war game would ever operate in. You know, we, we all know that, that um, infantry can only, move, can only move about six inches a turn, or, you know, they can, they can fire about, about 12 inches and, and, and so forth. The, the, the ranges are scaled down. But then you've got things like models of Le Sainte or, or Ugamont. I mean, a model of Le Sainte, assuming it's in, in, in line with the figure scale, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the size. In terms of the ground scale, it's the size of a you know, fairly major village. You know? Um, it, they, one can go on and on and on. But again, that isn't the point. If, I mean, I can remember going to a big extravaganza at the National Army Museum when I was about 14, uh, and David Chandler and various other people of renown put on a put on a huge uh, war game at the Battle of Leipzig. Um, would that have generated a, in any way a satisfactory Battle of Leipzig? I don't know. Did I go away and read about you know about the Battle of Leipzig? Yes I did. So I I think that it is undeniable that that, that wargaming in its different forms, whether it's you know on the tabletop, whether it's in terms of map games, um, whether it's in terms of computer games, whether it's in terms of, of if you like, imagined alternative Waterloo's, um, I think that they are very very useful as a way of, of uh, encouraging interest in the past. Um, the fact of the matter is, as I, as, I, as I said recently on Twitter, in, in the context of current events, um, Robert E. Lee, Confederate General, who he once said, you know, it's as well that war is as terrible as it is, otherwise we would grow to love it too well. And the fact of the matter is, you know, God forgive me for a sinner, but it, it, it is a fascinating process. It, you know, it's, it's, always going to be one of the most fascinating, challenging things that, that, that man has to engage with. When you think about the, the problems which Hague had to manage on the, on, on the Western Front, which Montgomery had to manage in Normandy in 1944, or for that matter, Tel Alamein. Indeed, that Wellington had to manage in at Waterloo. If you think about the the complexity of that and the, um, the scale of the enterprise and so forth, yeah. Um, that is in itself, a, you know, you can, you can get enlightenment there. Now, as a teaching aid, I have tried to use it on a number of occasions. Um, one of the most interesting experience I had was I, I, I had a group of first year students, new personal tutees, and we'd been told that we had to do some sort of historical engagement with them. This is in their in their in their freshers week. You know, we had to we had to come up with a like a two hour session which would which would get them to, to sort of think about history. And what I did was I I, I took the 
Axis and Allies game uh, for 1914. Um, Axis and Allies, if, you, if people don't know, is a, is a series of games initially started with the whole, get Axis and Allies World War II, and then you've got Axis and Allies Pacific, Axis and Allies Europe, Axis and Allies D-Day, and, and so forth. And they, they eventually came up with, with Axis and Allies 1914. Funnily enough, that was marketed in 2014. But it is actually a pretty good way of representing the war on a strategic level. I mean, the system works very well. I mean, I thought it through on a number of occasions. Now, I knew I wasn't going to have time to um, play the game in just in two hours. Um, but I got, I, 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 got, I got the kids and... and um, treated them to cake and coffee and things like that. And, and I had the board set up and, and you know, there were two of them as, as Germany and two of them as France and two of them as Russia and so forth. And, and I explained, you know, simple, simple mechanics and said, okay, you know, in your first move, you're going to have to think about where you're going to attack and so forth. And they, uh, who takes the first move? Austria, Aust Austria takes the first move. Uh, and the, 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 the team commanded Austria, a, a, a chap called Max, a really nice girl called Gemma. Um, they were very, very reluctant to attack. And, and I said, well, you know, is that all you're going to do? And I said, yeah, that's all we're going to do. And it, it was really interesting because they're, you know, they're decent, nice people. They know about the horrors of the First World War, and they were simply unwilling to throw even plastic soldiers into the maelstrom. Um, and and yet, as I pointed out to them, you know, don't you know there's a war on? You know, how are you? You know, you've got yourself into this situation. You've got to win. How are you going to win without attacking? How are you going to win without risking enormous casualties? How are you going to win without inflicting enormous casualties on the enemy? Um, and that, that brought, them, brought the group up against a, a really, really stark set of choices, if you like. And... Um, Actually, I think it's a very, very good way of, 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 if you like, breaking the stranglehold of, of the present. The past is another country. And just briefly, I sent them to live in it. it, it what you say there does tap into what we've been discussing earlier, doesn't it? That, you know, war is not pretty. And for anybody who thinks that um, war is just a great laugh and I have had these sort of heated exchanges with people online that you know they they're so deeply immersed in the glamour inverted commas and the glory that they forget the actual history and and, and reduce it almost to sort of football matches or a points-based system as games in effect do you know these are calculations that are played out um, where people say, yes, but so-and-so got a point at, at, this, at this particular battle. You know, they draw 1-1 one, one or something. You just sort of think, no, you're talking about lives here. Um, so, But it works the other way as well. 
in that there are many people who in our society who cannot conceive of going to war who cannot who are incapable of thinking about war as a human activity like or perhaps unlike any other um you know many 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 students i mean i i i, I taught a uh, effectively a, a survey on revolutionary and Napoleonic Europe for, for many, many years. And many students, perfectly intelligent students, you know, would would do anything rather than, than address a military topic. You know, they, they simply would not get to grips with the, 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 the if you like, the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty. The sharp end. Now, my argument as a historian is that you cannot look at war whilst taking out the war. That, that, that you know, if I've, if I've written, you know, the, the, the many analytical books on the Napoleonic period that I have, um, I've been able to do that precisely because I've got a grasp of the chronology. I've got a grasp of how things work. I've got a grasp of what will work, what won't work, and so forth. Um, and so you get many people who, um, if you've got if you've got the people who who glamorise war, who think it's a wonderful adventure. Um, at the other end, you get people who've got an equally distorted view, which is war is something that you cannot comprehend. It, it, a war has no logic. A war um, is so horrific that you can't bring yourself to think about it. Um, where do I stand? War is the most disgusting, evil, dirty, vile. I despise those who go to war gratuitously. I, I despise those who use war as an instrument of, of state policy. And yes, I am talking about Napoleon. And yes, I am talking very firmly about Vladimir Putin. They are men who commit the absolutely unforgivable. So war is a vile, horrible thing, a dreadful thing. It's a cancer. But let's pick up on that word. Cancer is a horrible thing. I lost the very best friend I had in the whole, in the whole of my life to cancer when he was age 34. It, it destroyed him. He, 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 and I don't just mean he died of it, he did, poor man. But, but he, you know, before he died, he was a great big bad man. And he was reduced to looking like somebody who just come out of Auschwitz. Cancer, then, is a dreadful evil. Does it mean to say that we shouldn't study it? 
could it be a better world if nobody understood cancer? Um, and so, so I, I think that war is something that somebody or a set of somebodies has got to study. Uh, and I think that wargaming can be one way of approaching it, because apart from anything else, if I was Mr. Putin, I would not have wanted to lose this war in Ukraine. Before going to war, I would have wargamed it. I would have looked at every possible worst case scenario I could possibly have found. Because that, you know, well, assuming that, that Mr. Putin is a rational human being, one would, one would imagine that he would want to win his war with as few casualties as possible, both amongst his own troops and amongst the, the population of the Ukraine, if he wants to take the, you know, the population of the Ukraine back, and if the Ukraine back, it's not he's killing everybody. You know, you want to do it with minimal force, minimal violence. Wargaming then is a way in which war, if you want, can be moderated, can be limited. Um, there will doubtless have been occasions when, when this idea or that idea has been wargamed and people say, oh, no, that, that really does not look like a good idea. Well, let's stay with that theme then, because this was the, the last thing that I wanted to discuss with you. From a, a military educational perspective now, how do staff colleges use wargaming as a tool? Is there an interest in looking at and simulating historic scenarios as a means of learning from history? Or are they far more interested in looking at hypothetical potential future scenarios? There's certainly a very strong interest in um, historical scenarios. I mean, I've had the, the, the privilege of taking part in a, a number of military exercises um, in which I've gone out with detachments of British troops to the battlefields of the Peninsula War. And we have walked the ground discussed what's happened, um, looked at all sorts of issues. And amongst the things that, that we've looked at are, are the way in which episodes of the Battle of Salamanca or wherever um, tie in with, with, with modern military doctrine. Um, it, I some readers will know something about, about what happened at Salamanca. Um, uh, of course, you know, Wellington is, is initially planning to retreat, and, and famously he, he's chewing on a chicken, a chicken wing, and, and he looks across the, the battlefield and he sees the French uh, extending themselves further and further, and, and exposing the, the troops forming the, the advance guard of their army, and, and so he orders the, the, the third division to attack, and um, and the ground where the third division attacks, where they contact the, the French division that they're up against, it, it's almost completely unchanged. And you, um, you know, you can talk about the, 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 the um, Packenham's you know, use of ground to cover his approach, 
you can talk about the, the way in which the, the French were taken by surprise because the configuration of the ground, they couldn't see what was ahead of them. Um, but the most interesting thing perhaps is um, that, that, that Pakenham basically attacks the French head on. He, he if you like, crosses the T um, and, and he, he attacks the French head on. And if, if you want to read about this, do have a look at Rory Muir's book on Salamanca, which is- Only recommend. Yeah, absolutely excellent. But uh, um, and, and to do this, they 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 they're hidden in a, in, a, in a dip in the ground, and they burst over the over the hill in front of them. And they come down the other side, and they go up onto the bridge where the French are. And Pakenham places his, his divisional battery off to a flank on the on on the on the, the little ridge which he has to cross before getting to the French. Uh, and I, I say to them, well, okay, okay, imagine that this is a battalion level attack. Imagine that the infantry battalions of um, the third battalion, the, the, the third division, are actually are actually infantry companies. They're rifle companies. Um, they're ordered to attack you know, to clear this this hill. Where are you going to put your support company? And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll say to the to the commander of the of, of the of the of the of the support company, you know, where are you going to put your machine guns and mortars? And he'll say, well, over there, because it it enfilades a French line of march, and he points exactly to where Pakenham had his artillery. So you know, you you can you can use these uh, historical experiences, historical events, to. Uh, as a way, if you like, of getting um, present-day army officers um, to key into the realities of what they have to do. And actually, if you, you, know, you focus on what soldiers in the past have had to do, you know, it can be a really quite steep learning process for them. Um, and it makes them think, well, actually, if I was up against it, if... For whatever reason, the technology failed. It doesn't turn up, and we always and we all know that radar fails in in, in night and fog, and particularly both. You know, what are you going to do about it? You know, it's down to you, the chap at the sharp end, and you've got to make it work. So, so I think that on that level, um, if you like, at the level of tactical. It, it can be very, very useful. And, and I know that um, certainly at Sandhurst, which is an institution that over the years I had some contact with, um, people like my, my esteemed and, and much lamented friend Paddy Griffith, who was one of the real intellectual powerhouses of the war gaming of my generation, um, you know, he, de he developed a whole series of war games which he played out at Sandhurst. Um, not necessarily figure games, often sort of committee games, role-playing games, you know, where, I mean, I, I took one, one part of, on there when I, when I played the part of General Quester in, 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 in the Palavera campaign. And, and um, you know, we were split up into different teams, different headquarters. Uh, we were only given very limited information as to what was happening. We had to respond to it. Um, yeah. It, 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 it is, has immense relevance. Um, you know, 
just just to go back to current affairs for a moment, and this is a very sober thought. Um, I believe it was Field Marshal Montgomery who said that the first rule of warfare is not to march on Moscow. And that's actually quite a sobering thought if you know, we're trying to think about what could or should be done. Um, so yes, I, I, I fear all of this has a very direct relevance. Charles, this has been uh, a hell of a way to kick off um, Wargaming Month. We've gone from the the enjoyment to the philosophical to the deep, um, probably deeper than I, I anticipated we'd get over the course of the whole month. Thank you for your time today. What's next for you? Because you mentioned that there's a book kind of in, in the pipeline about Wargaming Waterloo. What are you doing on, on that score and what what you are up to beyond that? Well, um, I've currently got three books on the stocks, um, two of which with the publishers. I've, I've, I've got a book which is going to make me, well, many of my books make me very, very unpopular. It's one, it's one of the gauges I have for if I'm doing something right. Um, but a, a book called British Battles of the Spanish Civil War, which actually looks at the battles of the British Battalion of the International Brigades, and comes up with the doubtless heretical opinion that the whole outfit was completely useless, that the international brigades were completely useless, and that the whole thing was essentially a, a, pro a communist propaganda stunt. Um, and that is not going to go down very well. Um, book number two is Stuart Spectre's Ghosts of the English Civil War. I mean, like the International Brigade's book, this is also with the publisher now. Um, and again, it's really comes out of this um, course, I suppose, in public history that, that, uh, that we did in the department. Um, yeah, how is history remembered? What mechanisms are, are there whereby history is, rem is remembered? Well, ghost stories are one of them. Um, by any anthology of ghost stories, and you will find lots and lots and lots of English Civil War ghost stories. You know, the Cavalier ghost is a almost a sort of stock figure. Um, what I've done in the book is to is, is if you like to look at how these ghost stories emerged. Um, and there's a variety of ways in which that happens. I think you know, in in a sense, this is imagined history, but, but there's no record, really. You, you, you have to imagine it. But if you take, you know, let's say, a figure of a headless horseman, and you know, there's supposed to be a, a headless horseman who gallops across the battlefield to Edge Hill or wherever, in all probability, that can be traced back to actual human experience. Somebody saw a headless horseman, you know, a, a, a rider whose head had been taken off by a cannonball, but who was propped up in the saddle. You know, by the by, you know, construction of this saddle and the stirrups and so forth, and the horse just wandered around with him on his back. And then the final one, War Game in Waterloo, um, which oddly enough, you know, when, when, when we wrap up this interview, I'm going to wander over to the university and library and get on with for a while. Um, beyond that, I don't know. Um, I thought vaguely about writing a book on 
well, Napoleon for and against, a famous Dutch book, which looks at the, at the French historiography. Well, nobody's ever done it for the, for the English language historiography. Um, I've been encouraging you to do that one for a, at least five years. I'm very disappointed that you haven't got on with it, Charles. It's not good enough. Yeah, I know. I, 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 in, in fairness, in fairness, I have written a long and detailed proposal and, and my, my agent kicked it back and said, so write a specimen chapter. You know, the, the one thing I do assure you is I'm not going to be reduced to playing golf. To be honest, I, I don't really see you as a golfer, Charles. I'm not sure you can pull it off with the Van Dyke beard. I just I don't don't see the two going together. Charles, it's been great. You are on Twitter, aren't you? Is it at Charles yeah, J. Esdale? Just put Charles Joseph Esdale and you will find me. Fantastic, folks. Go follow Charles on Twitter. Charles, it's been great talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. My dear fellow, it's been a pleasure. And, I, and Zach, you, you know, I do wish you well with all my heart. Hello again, folks. A big thank you as ever for listening. And just a quick reminder that you can support the show by hitting the like button, sharing, subscribing so that you can find your way back for more and leave that review on Apple Podcasts if you can. You can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. Do get in touch with your thoughts and experiences. And as ever, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. This month is voted for by my patrons. It's one of the small things that I can do uh, as a very meagre way of trying to thank them for their um, input and, and support. Um, if you are interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, please check out the link in the description. Prices start from £1 a month. I know it's a big step to uh, go that extra mile uh, and start supporting the show, but if you are able to, it means a huge amount. Uh, there are different perks in each tier. Inevitably, the more that you're willing to chip in, the, the more the perks. The voting rights start at the commander um, tier, and the idea is that every few months, there is a vote on what the next theme will be, and then I produce an intense month's worth of content where I more or less double the output of the show um, to, to give you a really deep dive into that particular area. There are other perks and other tiers, including being able to request specific episodes on a topic that matters to you, and even one-to-one -one meetings with me. If all of that's not for you, and believe me, I completely understand that a regular subscription isn't people's thing, then there is another way, so you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi, and the amount is completely up to you. Anything from, you know, 5p all the way up to, well, whatever you feel the, the episode and the, the series is worth. Um, I know it's a big ask, but bear in mind that it is through the, the tips and the subscriptions that this show keeps going. Uh, there are obviously overheads for production. There are all kinds of things, you know, new equipment that's needed, uh, and so on and so forth. And if I'm going to diversify, which is the aim, and to bring you content, particularly from battlefields, I do need your support. It's worth saying that, you know, all of this is done in effect for free. Um, I, I'm very pleased about the fact that there is no paywall behind it. So those of you who are able to dig into your pockets and show your appreciation in a financial manner, it does mean a huge amount. Um, and it does mean that I can plan for what is what will hopefully in time be a very exciting future for the show. A big thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser and Todd and Laird Campbell, my Marshall patrons, Matt Bone and Marcus Cribb, 
my commander patrons Ger Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham and Michael Guest, my mentioned in dispatches plus patron Noah Fink, and my mentioned in dispatches patrons Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Rory Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coquelin, and Stephen Coulson. So, what can you expect over the course of Wargaming Month? Well, you've had a dive into one very specific uh, product that's out there, but we're going to explore all kinds of wargaming genres. We're going to look at board games, we're going to look at miniatures, we're going to look at the way in which tabletops work, we're going to look at the computer game as a genre, and look at the, the strengths and limitations of a specific example there. It's worth saying that the computer game stuff is over on the YouTube channel. There is a, an apology in advance about the quality of the content of the recording for that. There was a big issue with lag over the course of that recording, and it couldn't be shot twice. We'd already spent about four hours um, of work on it uh, just in terms of recording um, by the point that we got a final product on that. But it'll the, the conversation that's tied into that will hopefully kind of spark your interest and you'll at least be able to get an idea of some of the things that we're talking about even though the footage is um, painfully jumpy. So do head over to the Napoleon Assist YouTube channel for that. There will also be uh, a huge debate between four leading lights in the wargaming world and I'm sure they've snorted with laughter at that description but they're great people and I have no regrets. So lots for you to look forward to. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening.